It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hey, everybody. Hello, and welcome to Chapter 14 of the Dubious Book of Famous Deeds, the history podcast that looks at the world through the eyes of the Victorians, as told by a book from 1889 that I found in an alleyway, The Pictorial Treasury of Famous Men and Famous Deeds. The men are obscure, the deeds are questionable, the details are sketchy, but I am here to clear it up as best I can, though I am not a historian. Today we're reading about John Milton, a man best known for writing the ten-volume epic poem Paradise Lost, but the book doesn't focus too much on that. Instead, we're going to learn about his personal life, his travels, and his involvement in the English Civil War. And joining me for this chapter is an extremely funny woman. She is a writer, a performer, a comedian. You can see her work on the CBC shows Kim's Convenience and Strays. Please welcome Alana Riach. Thank you for being here, Alana. This is amazing. Thank you. What an honor. Here we go. This is chapter 14 of the pictorial treasury of famous men and famous deeds. Okay. Yep. <laughs> John Milton. John Milton was born in London on the 9th day of December, 1608. Mm. His father, in early life, had suffered for conscience' sake, having been disinherited upon his abjuring the popish faith. Oh, abjuring is a word I've never heard before. That's a fancy way to say he quit Catholicism. Yeah, I, I inferred it from the way the story has been told, but mm -hmm. abjure, that's a new word. Yeah, use that. Love it. So he, uh, this is John Milton Sr. we're talking about. He yes. became a Protestant, which I guess at the time, unpopular, uh, and was disavowed by his devout Catholic father, Richard the Ranger Milton, <laughs> who, <laughs> who I can only assume was a professional wrestler. I want to know who gave him that nickname. I know, the Ranger Milton. Ugh, it's not even a good nickname. No. It reminds me of when I, when I was a kid, my brother decided to give himself a nickname because no one would. And he nicknamed himself Degrees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I just remember that he used to sign emails with Degrees with a bunch of E's and then one Z. Oh, anyway. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. 
what prompted him to choose degrees? Was it like uh, I have no idea. I have no uh, idea. Like a heat thing? Like I'm like I'm super hot. I'm degrees. <laughs> I think he was, I don't know. I think he was really mad because everyone else had a, a nickname. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. Uh, he pursued the laborious, this is still his dad. He pursued the laborious profession of a scrivener. Do you know what a scrivener is? I don't. Scrivener was somebody who could read and write because not everybody could at the time uh, and made their living writing legal documents or letters. Of so, course. Okay. So yes. You need some money lending done. You need a scrivener to come in and write down the agreement. Call the scrivener. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is a scrivener. <laughs> who needs a contract written? Who needs something scrivened? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Laborious profession of a scrivener and having realized. An ample fortune. He retired into the country to enjoy it. He made a lot of money. He made enough money that his son, John Milton Jr., would not have to work for much of his life. Oh, wow. He was also, John Milton Sr., a composer of music, and 20 of his compositions survive today. And are they good? Haven't heard them. Okay. I should, I should have Spotified them. I yeah. Have <laughs> you know, many lawyers dabble in music. That's a thing. Oh, yeah? Like, yeah. they got to blow off that steam. Yeah. Also, because I think I think many lawyers are actually quite creative. Educated at Oxford, he gave his son the best education that the age afforded. Like I said, he was loaded. At mm -hmm. first, young Milton had the benefit of a private tutor. From him, he was removed to St. Paul's School. Next, he proceeded to Christ's College, Cambridge. Every passenger through St. Paul's churchyard must have noticed the dark imprisoned court under the colonnades. It makes itself known as the playing place of the boys in St. Paul's school, and there played with his long since forgotten schoolfellows, the Bard of Paradise. So it's a little write-up about <laughs> how nice St. Paul's school was. Yeah, sounds great. St. Paul's school still exists today. Oh, yeah. A selective independent school, what we would call a private school for boys aged 13 to 18 in mm. London, founded in 1509. It has been ranked the leading school in its country academically. And if you have $62,000 to spend a year on your child's education, and you can look past the 80 complaints of sexual abuse over the last six decades. Oh my God. Looks like a great place to learn. Okay, yes. You'd have to really do some like... You'd have to really squint your eyes to not <laughs> to not see that, you know what I mean? <laughs> the boy was studious and, when only 12 years of age, made many a time did he sit up till midnight, conning his books, not only laying the foundation of his marvelous scholarship, but of his blindness, too. Wait! <laughs> Wait, is he blind? <laughs> and that is how you <laughs> foreshadow a story. <laughs> oh my god. Twists, turns. Uh, Didn't twist. see it coming. <laughs> Didn't see it coming. Neither did he. Uh, oh, wow. Well, yeah, neither yeah. did he. Later on in life, he will he will go blind. He will lose his sight completely. Oh, so he's just partially blind at this point. At this point, full sight. Full sight oh. now. But what they're saying is laying the foundation of his blindness 
is this old tale, which even my dad said to me, the belief that reading at in night? the dark at night yes. will make you go blind. This is my parents said this to me, too. Yeah, it's not true. It's not true at all. Of course it's not true. Yeah, but I, my dad was like, oh, that's why I have glasses. I read after my bedtime. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but uh, I looked it up. Reading in the dark will strain your eyes, but never damage your eyes. Wait, when did you look that up? Like recently or as a child to disprove? (laughs) No, like this week. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I would love to be like, oh, really, Dad? Well, I'm going to go to the World Book Encyclopedia and look that up. (laughs) Yeah, there was no internet back then. I took my dad at his words, as I did for so many things. I know, and I think that's how we all got into so much trouble, because there was no internet, and we just had to take people at their word. That's or right, go to the yeah. library, which, like, I mean, you're not gonna. Do that's that a bit of a trek. A, if it's winter, I'm not going. Yeah, you're not you gonna know? bring up the microfiche on blindness. <laughs> Remember microfiches? I do. So yes, so his blindness hasn't happened yet, but he will go blind. Ere mm-hmm. eleven summers had rolled over him, he would sing of the golden tressed sun the spangled sisters of the night, and the thunder-clasping hand of the Almighty. Wow. The author of this really had a fun time, huh? Speaking of the author of this, this book has a serious habit of plagiarism. Oh. This is some sort of compilation of writings. Sometimes they're lifted completely from one source. Other times, some sections have been plagiarized, all without credit. And this is one of those chapters where only portions have been lifted from a very specific source. And it was Googling those quotes because I couldn't find what poems that was supposed to be from. I could only find the original source material of this text, which is Shades and Echoes of Old London, written in 1864 by the Reverend John Stoughton, a minister and ecclesiastical historian. Wow. And he loves adjectives. He sure does. (laughs) He also loves buildings. And so when we were talking about the playground of St. Paul's School. That makes sense. His whole book is all about where you can go in London to see historical sites and historical events that took place there. So it's kind of like a historical walking tour of London. So anytime you hear about long descriptions of buildings, that's the portions of this chapter that has been plagiarized from Shades and Echoes of Old London. Mm -hmm. Okay. In 1632, having taken the degree of M.A., uh, he was preparing to become an Anglican priest. Milton finally quitted the university. We're talking about Christ College at this point. His father had now retired from London and lived upon his own estate at Horton in Buckinghamshire. In this rural solitude, Milton passed the next five years resorting to London only at rare intervals for the purchase of books and music. Typical teenager, right? Just going downtown from the suburbs. (laughs) Like going to HMV. Gotta get my tunes and my stories. In 1637, Milton's mother dies. Oh. Sarah Jeffrey was her name. Sarah. You know what, what I always think about death in the 1600s? <laughs> I actually have thought this many times. Was death different then? Like, did people grieve? Like, I feel like grieving is like a thing now that we do and we make space for. But I always wonder, did people just kind of plow ahead? Like, oh, my mom's dead. Here we go. 
there was so much more death back then. It's yeah. hard to, uh, I, I don't know, I'm of two minds. A, it's, it's, I'm sure the grief feels like it does today. Uh, but also, like, they always talk about, oh, they had so and so many kids, three of whom survived. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, the death of your child was normal. Uh, was normal. Yeah. yeah. And you just, like, had to, you know, have a surplus of children to make sure a few made it out. I know. I think about this all the time of just, like, I wonder what the inner life of a person who was just surrounded by death that's common, mm-hmm. like, what their nervous system must be like. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, desensitized because yeah. there's also a fair amount of plague going on. Of course. Um, the rats. Around now. Yeah. Um, bubonic plague, which had a much higher death rate than uh, uh, the Omicron variant. Um, oh, well. Yeah, so. Remains to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say it has terrified me. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> okay, so his mother died, and in the following year, he commenced his travels. This is what you do when you graduate university. You travel. Yeah. Like an Australian, you know? That's all they do. Walkabout. Yeah. (laughs) Did you go traveling after university? Oh, absolutely not. After university, I was just thrust into the world of adulthood Mm -hmm. quite unexpectedly. Before university, yes, I took a year off. Oh, okay. Yes. I went to Serbia on a dare. My best friend was there. He's from Serbia. And he was like, I dare you to come meet me here. And I was like, okie dokie, no problem. And then I went. And I also went to Scotland. This is what Milton did too. He went to Europe. The state of Europe confined his choice of ground to France and Italy. Uh, When they talk about the state of Europe, they're talking about the Thirty Years' War, which lasted from 1618 to 1648. Thirty years. Yeah, checks out. Mm -hmm. That's an accurate name. And uh, was fought mainly in Central, Western, and Southern Europe, mostly where Germany is today. One of the most destructive wars in European history, killing between 4.5 and 8 million. Its scope and extent was driven by the contest for European dominance between the Habsburgs in Austria and Spain and the French House of Bourbon, or Bourbon, if you want to sound cool, I guess. Mm -hmm. Here's his itinerary. After a Mm. short stay in Paris, he pursued the direct route to Nice, where he embarked for Genoa and then proceeded to Pisa, Florence, Rome, and Naples. So this is, when you go over to somebody's house and it's a new house and they give you the grand tour... The Grand Tour was actually a thing, and it was the name for this, the trip around the continent, predominantly in the 17th to 19th centuries of young European men of sufficient means and rank Mm. to take a tour around when they come of age. So the Grand Tour is a very specific itinerary where you're going to get cultured in things around Europe, and you're going to learn about the arts and architecture and and the classics and things like that. And you're probably going to party a lot. I would think so. I mean, I would hope so. Yeah. Wow. They did life different. You know? I know. I know. Again, of course, it was the rich people who could do this. Yeah. Sometimes they were accompanied by a chaperone and a guide. Some of them were so rich that servants carried them on the grand tour because you're, <laughs> going, <laughs> because you're going over Alps of things. And so, that would be me. If I was rich, I'd be like, I can't. <laughs> I can't. Walking. <laughs> no. <laughs> Please. Um, 
It stayed popular until the advent of trains. Mass transportation of railways and steamships made this Grand Tour go out of fashion, as well uh, as the fact that it got too popular with the American nouveau riche. So the, the, the new trash. Rich, yeah, the trash yeah. ruined everything for mm-hmm. that. <laughs> for the old money. As they do. <laughs> uh, yep, as they will. Okay. He originally meant to extend his tour to Sicily and Greece, but the news of the first Scotch War, having now reached him, agitated his mind with too much patriotic sympathy to allow of his embarking on a scheme of such uncertain duration. So, <gasps> the Scotch Wars also known as the Bishop's Wars, the first in a series of conflicts known collectively as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Basically, it sounds like a lot of Game of Thrones. I was just about to say by R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but basically, it's all setting up the English Civil War. That's what this is. Mm-hmm. This is the backdrop of, of Milton's whole life, actually. It's always been a confusing issue for me. It still is. It predictably was fought over religion, specifically the uniform changes that Charles I was imposing on the churches of Scotland and England. I can't tell the difference between Presbyterian, Protestant, Catholic, you know, Anglican. There's so many different shades of Christianity. I don't know why everyone's fighting. Yes, this is the thing. Well, the, yes, all of them. I, I mean, but that's me from the outside. I've never had a religion. So for me, everything seems the same. Yeah, and I was raised Catholic. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, thank you. (laughs) But I guess back then, the church was even more of a power structure than it is today. And it still is. It's like it it drives so much ideology today. But back then, I guess it was literally like governing kingdoms. Yes, it was. Yeah. And you know, if you grow up looking towards a certain hierarchy of people, it's very difficult to change your mind about it. True. Yeah. You pick your team early and you stick with it. Yeah, many people do. Mm -hmm. And I get it. Never had a team, never will, but I get it. (laughs) Just watching from the sidelines. Yeah. (laughs) That's where I prefer to be. Being carried by my servants. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, yes. So the Scotch Wars break out. He's like, I got to get home. Yet his homeward movements were not remarkable for expedition. He had already spent two months in Florence, and as many in Rome, yet he devoted the same space of time to each of them on his return. From Florence, he proceeded to Lucca, and thence by Bologna and Ferrara to Venice, where he remained one month, and then pursued his homeward route through Verona, Milan, and Geneva. It sounds like for someone who was very preoccupied with his patriotic duties to get home in time for the war. Had a lot of pit stops. Had a lot of pit stops. Yeah. Stayed several months. (laughs) He had conversed with Galileo. Of course, as as one does. Stops off at Galileo's house and has a chat. This amazes me. I wonder what they talked about. I know, right? Milton was 30. Galileo was 77. Galileo at this time was blind. Milton still has his full sight. And is no inclination yet that he'll be blind to him. None. None. Okay. And uh, I guess he impressed Milton so much that he references Galileo several times, once by name, in Paradise Lost. Galileo is the only contemporary referenced in this entire epic poem. So he was a big Galileo fan. Uh, I mean, who isn't? The Pope, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. And I think we've already identified they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. After 15 months of absence, Milton found himself again in London at a crisis of unusual interest. (laughs) 
I feel like I'm always having a crisis of unusual interest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the king was on the eve of his second expedition against the Scotch. So the second of the Scotch Wars. Mm-hmm. And we may suppose Milton to have been watching the course of events with profound anxiety. <laughs> like us always. Yeah. He was now lodging at a tailor's in St. Bride's churchyard, but he made no long stay at his lodging. Accordingly, a pretty garden house he took in Aldersgate Street, the fitter for his turn by reason of the privacy, besides that there are few streets in London more free from noise than that. Aldersgate Street, free from noise, (laughs) a garden house there. (laughs) Is this book trying to do jokes? Yeah. Is that what they- <laughs> <laughs> this is the guy. This is the walking tour. Yeah. He's got a little bit going now. Imagine. Can you free imagine? Free noise on Aldersgate Street. <laughs> I feel like that's all humor of the, what, 1600s, whenever mm. this was written. Yeah. Before our time, let's say, is mm. just asking questions like in an <laughs> astonished tone. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> oh my God. At Whitsuntide in the year 1645, <laughs> I thought Whitsuntide was a place, but it's a time. Whitsuntide. Whitsuntide is the week or weekend containing Whitsun Day. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and um, what is Whitsun Day? It's Britain's name for the High Holy Day of Pentecost. Again, I'm not religious enough to know what Pentecost is, but it's the 50th day after Easter Sunday. It commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles of Jesus Christ. So there you go. Whitsunday. So don't forget. Yeah, 50 days after Easter. Whitsuntide. Yes, at Whitsuntide in the year 1645, having reached his 35th year, he married Mary Powell a young lady of good extraction in the county of Oxford. Mary Powell, he was 34, she was 16. Ooh. Yeah. Hey. (laughs) Someone should have said something about that. I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) All they probably said was, why aren't you married yet, Mary? Get out there. Or, how are you still alive? (laughs) (laughs) 16? You're elderly. Married Mary Powell, a young lady of good extraction, but accustomed to a great deal of company, merriment, and dancing, and little fitted, therefore, to sympathize with him in his severe tastes and classic sort of life. Oh, wowie zowie. In other words, she likes to party. He's an old stuff, stuff in the box. He's 34 and he's all about his studies. 34 still sounds like a good time to party, but... I am 34. (laughs) I party. Yeah. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) No, he's all about translating things to Latin. And she's like, uh, where are, I don't know, the toys? Like, Yeah, like, let's... Let's go to a country dance. So they did not get along. He was all about his studies, his Latin, his writing, uh, and didn't like her having fun. Uh, This probably happened a lot back then, I guess. I feel like this still happens today. (laughs) So, are they going to last? 
place your bets now because when we come back, we are going to get into all the weirdly public details of John Milton's marital problems. We'll be right back after this brief but necessary break. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We're back. We left off with John Milton's marriage to Mary Powell. He's 34. She's 16. And to paraphrase 90s folk band slash social pariahs Moxie Fruvis, she likes to go out dancing but her baby loves a bunch of authors. I hate as much as you do that I brought up Moxie Fruvis. Anyway, suffice to say, they are not getting along. Let's return to Chapter 14 with Alana Riach. One month after he allowed his wife to visit her family. Allowed? Okay. When summoned back to her house, she refused to return. Good. Yes. Fuck yeah. Upon this provocation, Milton set himself seriously to consider the extent of the obligations imposed by the nuptial vow and came to the conclusion that in point of conscience, it was not less dissolable for hopeless incompatibility of temper than for positive adultery, and that human laws, in as far as they opposed this principle, called for reformation. These views he laid before the public in his doctrine and discipline of divorce. So... She leaves. He asks her to come home. She refuses. Yes. Probably because... There's nothing to do there. There's nothing to do. This <laughs> sucks. I've made a terrible mistake, mom and dad. Right? Yeah. And since England at the time has no formal mechanisms for divorce, he writes and distributes a pamphlet making the case for divorce based on incompatibility between the couple. Okay, and who does he distribute this to? Everybody. Everybody. It's just like around, he's on the street corner. He's like, hey, I, I believe that we should be getting divorced. Check this out. Circulates it. It goes everywhere. I'm picturing in like an 80s movie where those kids throw flyers for like a house party down the down the stairwell, you know? Yeah, yeah. I just need everyone to know this is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. huge divorce at my place. She sounds cool also. Yeah, sure. I feel like yeah. if I was 16 and I was dating someone older, I would just be like, okay, like I guess <laughs> I'll go back. Like I don't <laughs> I don't think I would have had the self-esteem to stay home. So You probably wouldn't be alone in that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I've got two minds about this because on, on one hand, he's right. Uh, people should be able to get divorced if they're not uh, Absolutely. getting along. Yeah. Uh, on, on the other hand, he's only circulating this when it's time for him to want to get divorced. You know what yeah. I mean? In fact, at the same time, he was pursuing another woman. We don't know her first name. We just know her as Miss Davis. And he mm-hmm. proposed to her, attempted to convince her that his marriage should have resulted in a divorce. <gasps> a snake. And that it would be appropriate for her to marry him, although he was already legally married. He's like, I'm already married, but uh, according to my pamphlet, which you should read, (laughs) 
I am uh, entitled to a divorce. I've dated this guy a thousand percent. <laughs> oh, he's a little snake. Mm-hmm. Okay. But meanwhile, am I to guess that, like, she's at home, still married, cannot do anything, I yeah, suppose. She's, yeah, she's stuck at her house. Yeah. Yeah, okay. She's just, like, technically married. This all backfired on him. Oh, good. His arguments were met with open hostility from everyone. Uh, <laughs> John, what are you doing? <laughs> what is this pamphlet? This is sad. Like, I'm not reading this. <laughs> Did you cut and paste these letters? This looks like a serial killer's letter. What are you doing? <laughs> Go home. The optics of this. Hey, listen, uh, I've worked up this philo- philosophical pamphlet. It's about uh, it's about why people should be able to get divorced. Uh, are there problems at home, Sean? Well, yeah, but that's... That's besides the point. That's beside no, no, no. This is about the the, the nature of divorce. <laughs> really, <laughs> John? I don't have time for this. You you have to go, <laughs> please. This is my wedding. Get out of here. <sighs> uh, okay, so here's how this turned out. Mean, <laughs> meantime, the lady whose rash conduct had provoked her husband into these speculations, her fault, yeah, her fault, and saw reason to repent of her indiscretion. No, girl, no. I know. At the house of a common friend in St. Martin's Le Grand, where she had contrived to surprise him and suddenly to throw herself at his feet, he granted her a full forgiveness. I'm sure. Fully to appreciate (laughs) this behavior, we must recollect that Milton was not rich and that no part of his wife's marriage portion, 1,000 pounds, was ever paid to him. So... I guess that's just a little thing to show how magnanimous he was, that he didn't even get a dowry. Yeah, I guess. If he sounds petty as hell. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds so like <laughs> my favorite kind of petty person, though. That's like. <laughs> so do they say what happened to his other I, wife, Miss Davis? Oh, Miss Davis and the woman who turned him down? No. Uh, oh, she turned him down. Oh, she I said see. no. She was like, no, this is... She was like, no, John, you're embarrassing yourself. Please don't do this. <laughs> John, stop. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know so many people who are like this, who are just like... I have to show everyone that I am right. I am right. And they go to like such extents that everyone's like, please do yourself a favor. Quit it. Now that you're saying this, I think this is the reason I got off of Facebook because I saw too many of those status updates. Oh my God. He would get destroyed on Facebook. Destroyed. But he would never leave. Yeah. He would double down. Oh, He's a he's a double down guy for uh-huh. sure. <laughs> okay, here we go. Early in 1649, the king was put to death. Oh, huge twist. <laughs> Surprising, shocker. For a full account of the state of the parties which led to this memorable event, we must refer the reader to the history of the times. 
They're not wrong. It's a lot. The short story is that the English Civil War was a series of conflicts fought between the Royalists, who had their own army, and the Parliamentarians, and Parliament had its own army. The King's army and the Parliament's army fought in a series of contests over the governments of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Charles I's side lost, and as you know, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. <laughs> He was tried for treason as a tyrant, yeah. traitor, murderer, and public enemy, and was beheaded on the 30th of January outside the banqueting house of his residence. Wowie. Yeah. Men are not okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I could think as you were saying all of that. Men are not okay. They're not doing well. Everyone has their own army? Okay. <laughs> In 1649... The Council of State had resolved no longer to employ the language of a rival people in their international concerns, but to use the Latin tongue as a neutral and indifferent instrument. So, okay, the Council of State, it was like the Privy Council that governed the country. After they killed Charles I, they had no king. Okay. They passed an emergency bill the same day as his execution declaring, and I'm talking about the House of Commons, declaring themselves the source of all power, effectively abolishing the monarchy and the House of Lords. <sighs> Big paperwork day. A lot of paperwork. Everybody come in early. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're abolishing stuff today. You got to come in. <laughs> oh, no. So they formed a little council and that council ran things. Okay. The office of Latin secretary, therefore, was created and bestowed upon Milton. Of course. So Milton understood Latin. He was... The son of a scrivener. Son of a scrivener. Mm-hmm. And he also got this job because when he wasn't advocating for his own divorce, he was <laughs> writing books promoting Republican principles and defending the right of the people to hold rulers to account, even to execute them if necessary. So he's out there oh, basically okay. saying we should be executing our kings if we want to. Yeah, well, to hold them to account. I mean, listen, he's a he's a bit of a troll, but I don't disagree with that. You should hold your people of power to account. Maybe not to murder, but you know. I guess when the idea of voting your, your ruler out isn't even a thing, I guess uh, killing them is the next. <laughs> yeah, beheading them is the only option. His hours from henceforth must have been pretty wild. Sorry, no. <laughs> must have been pretty well occupied by official labors. Right. He now removed to petty France, that's like Little Italy, to a house <laughs> next to the Lord Scudamore's. Stuttermore? Scudamore. Scudamore. Scudamore's definitely sounds like a franchise branded pub. Scudamore's. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, hey, welcome to Scudamore's. Yeah. My name's Paul. You want to Scudamore up your drink? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got some scud teenies from four till six. <laughs> it was never a large house. It shows the illustrious secretary of the foreign department did not then live in much splendor. His salary was only 280 pounds a year. 280 hmm. pounds a year would today be just over 50,000 pounds. Ah, okay. Which is like $100,000 here. Yeah, so not bad. No. So maybe much splendor is like a lot of splendor in this book, but he sounds like he still had a lot of comfort going on in his life. Yeah. He for sure had a sitting room. 
definitely had a sitting room. Yes. thousand percent. In 1651, his wife died after she had given him three daughters. Wow. Wait, she must have been pretty young. Yeah, six years after they married. So what? So she was 21 years old. So she was pregnant for half that time. Oh, oh boy. And then dead. <laughs> wow, sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. The father of daughters. That's right. Uh, who I read from a couple of sources just hated him. They, they gave him a lot of trouble. Of course. It sounds to me like all the women around, and we've only talked about five so far, but they all, oh, besides his mother, who we had, we don't know anything really about. Mm-hmm. They all seem to be hip, hip to him. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're all like, mm, I don't know about this guy. Looking over this house, it is touching to remember that here his blindness became complete. Oh, shit. So this is what had happened. Okay. It was not diagnosed, obviously, in his time, but people today believe that Milton's blindness was caused by either bilateral retinal detachment or glaucoma. I knew it. (laughs) Yeah. I knew it. Yep. I was thinking glaucoma. (laughs) Gotta be. He resigned his office of secretary in which he had latterly been obliged to use an assistant. Can't write things for anyone anymore without your sight. No. Sometime before this period, he had married his second wife, Catherine Woodcock, to whom it is supposed that he was very tenderly attached. Aw, John. (laughs) Daughter of a Captain Woodcock married her on the 12th of November, 1656. Don't know much else about her. But it sounds like maybe he found his person, you know? In 1657, she died in childbirth together with her child. Oh, okay then. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, he wrote a sonnet about it, so. Oh! So he goes blind, he marries someone else, she dies along with their child. This loss added to his blindness must have made his home for some years desolate and comfortless. I bet, especially considering his daughters don't want anything to do with him. (laughs) Yeah, this sucks. Things have really turned around for John Milton. And then it gets worse. Oh, no. In the spring of 1660, the restoration was accomplished amidst the tumultuous rejoicings of the people. The restoration is when the Republic, which uh, had Oliver Cromwell as its dictator, Cromwell died, the Republic fell into chaos, and Charles II, the son of Charles I, assumed the throne. It's what everybody wanted, except Milton and the Republicans. Of course. It was certain that the vengeance of government would lose no time in marking victims. Milton wisely withdrew from the first fury of the persecution, which now (laughs) descended on his party. The problem for Milton now is that after Charles I's death, Milton kept writing pieces promoting Republican government, even though the vast majority of people favored the return to monarchy. Uh, In 1660, with the return of Charles II, Milton had to go into hiding, fearing for his life. Oh, God. Because the new government granted a general pardon for all crimes during the Civil War, except the act also included a list of names of people who would never be pardoned, those who had participated in the regicide of Charles I, and Milton felt that he would be among that list. You know what's kind of nuts? I started out not really liking this guy, and now I'm kind of (laughs) like... John. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. He's becoming a sympathetic figure. I 
just feel like he's a bit of a loser. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad for them. Probably it was early after the Restoration and while living near Red Lion Square and then in Jewin Street that he was not only in the darkness, but fearing assassination from some royalist hand sleeping ill and restlessly. He did not eventually get put on that list, so he resurfaced after hiding for three months. As many men who go into hiding do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, not called out? I'm back, yeah. baby! <laughs> With a new tour of shows. <laughs> yeah, hey, can I get on your lineup? <laughs> All right. In the latter place on Jewin Street, he married his third wife. Oh. And there, Elwood the Quaker is introduced to him, the kind and patient Elwood who sits for hours reading Latin. Is his wife named Elwood? This is what this book has done. They mention that he married his third wife, and then they completely move on to start talking about his friend Elwood, who just hung out with him. They didn't even name the third wife. Yeah, well, and why would they? <laughs> so here's his third wife. Oh, you looked it up. Yeah, Elizabeth Minchel. Betty Minchel was 24, he was 55. So, keeping within uh, the pattern, I guess. Yeah. You know, um, half your age minus five. That's the calculation. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. That's the equation. He's out of work, he's completely blind. He's depressed, and at the best of times, no fun. His stepdaughters hate him. His stepdaughters hate her. They can't stand her either. Yeah. And yet she married this guy 31 years older than her, mm. cared for him, read to him, cooked for him, sang to him, and apparently they loved each other very much. Oh, okay. And she was with him until he died. They were very happy together. Well, I can't fault that then. She was of age. She knew what she was doing. Yep. A plaque in Manchester commemorates her birthplace as Milton's third and best wife. <laughs> oh, God. Of course. <laughs> oh, if All only right. I, I could have a plaque that says Lance's best wife when I die. <laughs> <laughs> but highly honored was that same Elwood's. When the great poet put into his hands a manuscript, asking his opinion of it, which proved to be the paradise lost. It was the work of years. Every former strain prepared for it. Prelusive touches had there been from boyhood of rich, sweet, solemn harmony. But in paradise lost came out the prolonged oratio, swelling forth from the organ of his soul in notes of bird-like sweetness in tones of deep, peeled thunder. Laying it on a little thick, but these people sure love Paradise Lost. Yeah, they do. They love it. Paradise Lost, a 10-book epic poem in blank verse, meaning it didn't rhyme. No, it was just the ramblings of a <laughs> blind man. <laughs> Considered one of the greatest works of English literature and cemented Milton's status as one of the best English writers of all time. Aww. Tells the biblical story of the fall of man, Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden, after being tempted by Satan, stands apart from other tellings in that it paints Satan as a charismatic and sympathetic character, possibly the protagonist of the story. Of course it does. That was what was so compelling about it. We're like, we love a bad guy. We love the bad boy, you know? Yeah. So it was written between 1658 and 1664, published in 1667. He had to write it entirely through dictation because he was completely blind at the time. What a feat! What a feat, right? He was also very ill, suffering emotionally after the death of his second wife, and just busted out this 
10-book epic poem. I think he died in relative obscurity and poverty, but this poem just kept getting more influential as people read it as it spread. As Carrie Fisher says, you take your broken heart and you turn it into art. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's nice. Isn't it incredible? Like, it doesn't sound... The other stuff that he's written, like he wrote pamphlets Mm -hmm. why he should get divorced and propaganda against the king. And then he busts out what is considered to be one of the best poems ever written. And it's just kind of wild to me, the notion, like, I've always kind of believed, like, everybody's got a story in them, you know? Everybody's got one thing. And his was so big and so well executed that it has survived centuries and is going to be forever considered a great work of art. You know what? I feel like it's one of those things where something, well, many things happened, but he lost his sight. He lost a person he loved and uh, it cracked open that part of him that we all would be annoyed by. Mm -hmm. His double downness and it cracked it open and then his heart came out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what it sounds like. He hit so many troubles that he became a conduit for a piece of art. (laughs) Yeah. That's something else. It's amazing. But I mean, I can understand why he didn't make it rhyme. When he's dictating something to somebody, he's just like, this is too much. Can you imagine? (laughs) I wonder if at first he did try to make it rhyme and then was like, yeah, you know what? (laughs) 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 This is too hard. (laughs) Or it was like he started experimenting with like loose rhymes and then it was just like, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. (laughs) Yeah. Read it back to me. Oh, no. No, 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 no. no. The cadence of that's all off. (laughs) The history of it is probably associated with most of the previous residences of Milton, but in Jewin Street, it was nearly perfected. And in our mind, wakens some echo of the poet's song whenever we walk along the pavement of that most unpoetic region. Is that that guy again? Yeah, it's the guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course. Milton's end was now approaching. The vigor of his bodily constitution had been silently giving way through a long course of years to the ravages of gout. That'll oh. get you back then, gout. Honestly, yes. He was buried on the 12th of November, 1674, the funeral being attended by the author's learned and great friends in London, not without a friendly concourse of the vulgar. Mm. You know it's a huge event when the vulgar turn up. Yeah. Milton's funeral must indeed have been a solemn sight. One fancies it slowly wending down from artillery walk through the picturesque streets of the 17th century. (laughs) Walking tour, the (laughs) end. The end. (laughs) So attaches a map where you can walk Milton's life. Through central London. You are here. (laughs) You know what? I think that's a life well lived. He made some mistakes. He made some choices. He Mm -hmm. had some consequences. He certainly didn't back down from his choices. Never. Not our John. (laughs) And didn't run too far away, I guess. I mean, he did run that one time where he thought he was going to get killed. Yeah, but I mean, fair. But he stuck to his principles. Something that not many people do, you know? And just happened to be on the wrong side of it almost every time, right? Yeah, except at the very end. Yeah. Well, and maybe even then, I'm not sure. 
we made Satan a sympathetic character. I don't know. I'm sure some could argue. I think that's great. But I think it's you know. great too. But I mean, from a from a storytelling point of view, we love to have sympathy for the villain. He understood that if you want a compelling villain, you have to root for the villain a little bit, just a bit. And so he painted Satan in a way that we kind of see where he's coming from, and we have some empathy. Also, he was on the wrong side in his time, but not on the wrong side of history. Yes, of course, everyone should be able to get divorced. If yeah, they can't oh, yeah. stand each other. And of course, we should be able to hold our leaders to account. A republic is generally the way to go. This all makes common sense. So he was ahead of his time in many ways. Yes, he would be um, a part of a tweet where someone says like, we owe this guy an apology. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't know who needs to hear this, but we owe this guy an apology. <laughs> just let that sink in. And I'm just going to put his paradise lost here and say this. <laughs> Alana's on Twitter and Instagram at Reoc Enroll. And look for her writing on your TV screen on CBC and beyond. That's our episode for this week. My thanks again to Alana Reoc for joining me. If you like the show, give it a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find the show on Twitter at Famous Deeds or on Instagram at Famous.Deeds. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BatesBot9000. Hey, if you want to support the work I do researching and recording this podcast, you can check out buymeacoffee.com slash Famous.Deeds. You don't need to sign up. It's just a quick and hassle-free way to support creators all over the internet. This podcast is part of the Sonar Network. You can go to thesonarnetwork.com and check out all the very cool and funny podcasts offered there. Next episode is all about lighthouses, baby. Lives are saved because of them. Weird people live inside of them. And next week's guest has no choice but to hear about them. Until then, I'm Paul Bates. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Sonar! It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.